0: Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, a lot coming up this month. I'm heading up to uh, Vancouver uh, from the 18th until the 21st. Uh, for a conference, an investment conference. And then I've got the Sundance Film Festival. My friend, Neil Fletcher, is going to be coming out and joining me uh, for about the first half of the Sundance Film Festival in Park City. And then after that, I'm heading to New Zealand. And I did get uh, an email from a listener in New Zealand. And I'll talk about that in a second. But before we get to the main podcast which is going to be the third interview with Jack Andrews, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. For over 50 years, Sailrite has been your authority in all things marine DIY. Do it yourself. What started as a mail-order correspondence course on sailmaking has grown into one of the largest online and catalog retailers for the marine industry. Sailrite stocks everything you need to sew for your boat. They are the only company that makes one design and custom sail kits. As a passionate group of DIYers, Sailrite's dedication to self-reliance at sea is proven in their products and services. Sailrite sells fabric, foam, supplies, and more, including the legendary portable and powerful Ultrafeed sewing machine. So you can be self-reliant and save money by sewing your own projects, from biminis to dodgers, sacrificial sail covers and sail bags to interior and exterior seating and cushions. Cellwright brings you the best brands in the industry for unmatched product quality and professional-looking DIY results. With over 50 years of bringing you quality products, unparalleled service and support, and free how-to videos, Sailrite is a name you can trust. Well, I got this email from Dr. Pace in New Zealand, and he said, if you're coming by my way, stop by and let's have a beer together. So I wrote him back, and I sent him a fairly detailed itinerary. I planned out my, uh, my one-month vacation in New Zealand just like I plan out my summer sailing schedule. And uh, he wrote me back and said, Thanks for sending your itinerary. You are clearly a meticulous planner. I've listened to your podcast for some time now and have even downloaded the first 20 episodes. It was quite a surprise to hear that you'll be visiting New Zealand. I see that you will be at Lake Canary on February 15th. Unfortunately, as luck would have it, I will likely be departing from Hokitika Airport that same day for a three-month sabbatical in California. I just mostly wanted to avail myself to your experience and advice. Your areas of expertise seem to intersect with a number of my long-term interests Since at least college, I've been drawn to the sea and have loved boats. After college, I visited Greece for a time and have always longed to return. I also have a particular interest in BCCs. By that, he means Bristol Channel Cutters. That's my boat. And I've followed the market for a number of years. Most recently, I noticed an advertisement for an unfinished BCC for sale in Wisconsin and would have been curious to know your thoughts on it. To do as you have done and build my own BCC would be a dream of a lifetime. I'm a general surgeon here in Greymouth. My professional career has been spent in rural surgery. That and other responsibilities have precluded me thus far from pursuing my sailing interests. Apart from various small sailboats which I have owned here in New Zealand, I've reached an age now when retirement is not far away and family responsibilities may be diminishing. My health is still good, and I'm wondering if I might yet be able to pursue my maritime interests. And then he goes on to say that uh, for my podcast, I don't write long emails. So that's why I'm talking to you on the podcast, Jonathan. Yeah, I wrote you back an email. I dictated it using um, Dragon Naturally Speaking, and I told you to ignore all the typos and just read between the lines when it doesn't make any sense because dictation is not perfect yet. Uh, but Jonathan, you know, it took me 5 years to build my Bristol channel cutter. Of course, I was only working on it in the winter. And uh so that was probably about 4 months a year, and I only worked on it on weekends and then after work. So if you could dedicate full time to working on a Bristol channel cutter, you could probably get it down to probably about a year. It I'd I'd be wondering how you would think you could get a bare hull from Wisconsin To New Zealand, I don't think that really makes much much sense. But I know there's a lot of New Zealand boat builders down there. New Zealand seems to be a country where people build their own boats. Where there's a lot of uh, you have a lot of support down there from other boat builders in New Zealand. At least a lot of the books I've read are, are written by Kiwi sailors that have built their own boats. So it's not uncommon in New Zealand. And you, if you want to do it from a haul and deck like I did, I would probably look for something a little closer than a Bristol Channel Cutter building America and try to get it down there. I can't imagine that that would be cost effective. But that being said, I think building something with your own hands gives you the greatest sense of satisfaction than you can, you can ever achieve you can go out and buy something, but then you just bought something and you don't know it. You build your own boat, you know it extremely well. And if you want to go down that path, I highly encourage you to go down that path as long as you have the time and you develop the skills along the way to be able to build the boat. I always joke that I used to buy big pieces of teak at $20 a board foot way back in the day. And I would make a mistake and it ended up being a small part. But as time went on my skills got better and better and better and of course i haven't honed those skills as much lately so i'd probably have to learn a lot of those skills all over again nonetheless thanks for the thanks for the email jonathan i appreciate it and we may still meet i may adjust my schedule so i could swing by and meet you before you take off for your sabbatical all right before we get into my interview with jack i just want to suggest that if you like this podcast please go into your itunes Directory, Actually, I guess it's the uh, Apple Podcast Directory and write a review of the podcast or the directory of your choice. Wherever you find this podcast, will you write a review and give me a five-star review? I appreciate that if you would. Also, if you're visiting Salt Lake, drop me a note. Go out to lunch or have a cup of coffee or go skiing together. I always like to meet my listeners, my friends out there. And if you want to support the podcast, there's several ways to do it. You can buy my ASA courses, which are audio courses, available at the website, medsailor.com. You you can become a Patreon, which is at patreon.com backslash medsailor. Or you could contribute to the podcast by recording interviews with people that you think are interesting and become a producer of the podcast. All right, with that out of the way, let me get on to my third interview with Jack Andrews. This was recorded before Jack left the Canary Islands. Right now, I'm sure he's en route from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean. I'm back with Jack Andrews. This will be the third interview in a couple of days here. It won't come out for a month or so, but uh Jack's about ready to hop across the Atlantic, and I just Jack, I wanted to talk to you about the preparations that you you're doing right now in in preparation for your Atlantic crossing, and sort of what the best practices are that you're seeing, how you're routing yourself, uh, what guides you're using, that sort of thing. So just just take it from there.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so obviously we've been on the boat for um, four seasons, uh, and we have lived on the boat. Not the entire winter, because we've been away for a few months visiting relatives during the uh winter in in the med, but most of the time we've been on the boat, so for instance, this season uh I think we were away for sorry when I say this season, so this last summer, obviously we were cruising, but the end of the previous year and the beginning of this year uh the winter part of the season we were away for a total of six weeks. Uh, the rest of the time, we're on the boat. So the boat's constantly getting used. It's constantly getting tested. You know, <laughs> the the heads, the batteries, the power systems, the chargers, it, it all constantly is functioning. So we have a pretty good understanding of what works. And as soon as something starts to change its behavior, the fact that it might be not working soon. And, you know, usually that requires checking and finding out what's wrong and then fixing or replacing, which has been good when it comes time to crossing an ocean because we're surrounded by, well, not surrounded, but we have a number of boats around us that are brand new. Um, You know, people have actually bought the boat this year Mm -hmm. or commissioned the boat this year. And sure, it's not like this month, but it's been this summer season. So they've picked the boat up. They've left work or they're taking sabbatical, or whatever they're doing. They get on their brand new boat and they come to here and, you know, boats that are worth probably around a million euros and they've got a list of problems that it's not the first set of problems because they've already done the test sales. They've already done the initial go back to the factory report or the initial issues. Uh, but these are more issues that they 've found since then, <laughs> but now that you know now they 're in the Canary Islands, um, a little bit further distant from from other places that might provide warranty in france and and so forth where the boats come from, and they 're struggling because you know some of them were thinking of leaving a few days ago, but they can 't because they 're waiting on technicians to arrive to fix issues, so best practice. Uh, one of the things I would definitely say is make sure that you know the boat inside and out you you can be lucky and you can get a boat that you can know inside and out because nothing really happens on it and it's ready to go I don't think that would be a new boat that might be a well maintained boat or it could be a semi new boat that's had a couple of years of service but it's not going to be a brand new boat And it's certainly not going to be a used boat that you just bought that summer and jump on. Um, I know that, uh, I mean, you interviewed Finding Avalon. and I saw those guys struggling with battery issues and all sorts of things that, um, fortunately for us, because we've been living on the boat for four years, we've got well and truly sorted out. We know know our power consumption. We know the batteries. We know when we're going to have to replace them next and so on. So just little problems like that. You know, brand-new boats where... The VHF radio is faltering, the AIS is not working constantly, and the B&G systems are intermittent, simply because the wiring is not producing the right voltage at the instrumentation. You know, things like that. I mean, (laughs) hard things to fix when you're sort of in that dilemma. It's a brand new boat. It's under warranty. It should be fixed by somebody else. But at the same time, I need to leave to go to the Canaries. I mean, to the Caribbean from the Canaries. So do I do it myself or do I wait for them to come? You know, what happens? So best practice, get to really sort of know your boat before you decide to cross an ocean. I know it sounds like common sense, but you know we had delusions of crossing in our first year, and I'm glad we <laughs> got rid of that. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I just got an email, and I read it um, a couple weeks ago. Cause it, actually, I read it today, but it's coming out today, but... Uh, by the time this comes out, it will have been past a couple weeks, but uh, somebody that's planning on going over, buying a boat, and sailing it across the Atlantic, and sailing it in the Caribbean because of the arbitrage there. And I just said, you know, you don't want to really try to get through the, the Mediterranean in one year or so. Yeah, you've been there a lot longer than you ever anticipated it. And you do. You know your boat well, and you probably know how to fix everything on your boat by now then.
1: Yeah, I'd say that there is very little that um, I mean I've I've pulled bits off the engine, I've had to fix injectors on the fly. Um you know, the electrical system is absolutely not a problem. I've done most of it. Now or refurbish most of it. It's it's been great and you know, it's it's wonderful if you if you're a hands-on person, if you're living on the boat, it means that you can get through these projects and you can pull things apart, look under look in cupboards, look under floorboards, look behind panels, and find all the problems before they um, turn into a disaster. So, yeah, definitely get to know mm-hmm. the boat. Well, that's probably the number one best practice that I can recommend. Um, from a sailing perspective, I mean, our rig for going across is gonna be two headsails. We've got two genoas. Uh, one will be pulled out with a whisker pole. The other one will be um, on the boom so it pulled out with the boom mm-hmm. um, We've We can also do wing-on-wing wing with the main mm-hmm. uh, We did that coming down to the canaries um, but since then we put both head sails up on the uh, On the track, so we've got two tracks running up the foil so the The four has got the foil. It's got two tracks. Each track's got a genoa They both furl as per normal. Just obviously, it's a little bit heavier furling them. It's a little bit heavier getting them up on the halyard because more weight, more friction uh, through the foil and bolt ropes. But it's a good
0: way to be. So you've got uh, the typical roller furling gear with two tracks on the head, on the foil that goes up. So you've just got them both uh, run up, and when you furl it, you furl both at the same time. Is that right then?
1: Correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And in actual fact, when we sailed across from Marina Rubicon on Lanzarote to Gran Canaria, um, we had both headsails up, but it was not a downwind configuration. We had uh, we had the wind on the beam, um, and we simply ran both headsails out on one side, so they were um, they were acting the two Genoas were acting as one sail in effect. Mm-hmm. And that worked totally fine.
0: Yeah, it makes, me so wish, you, it makes me wish I'd kept my old lapper because I could do that as well, but I didn't. I threw that one away because I didn't have room to store it on my boat.
1: So Well, you know, you should, yeah, definitely keep stuff like that because, I mean, for starters, the Genoa is not really, um, I mean, if it's an old sail, it doesn't matter because acting as a parachute, it's not acting as a, it doesn't have to have a sail shape to it, right? It doesn't have to have a good shape to perform because all it's doing is catching the wind. In actual fact, from what I understand, using brand new sails to sail downwind, and they're just ballooning, is not necessarily the best thing for them. But we have no choice on that one. So we've got one fairly new sail and the old sail, and they'll both be out. And um, yeah, they work really well in that sense. I mean, we'll take it down when we get across, Mm -hmm. because there'll be a little bit less downwind sailing. Obviously, we've got the whisker pole, so we can always pole out, Jenny and then just use the main on a wing-on-wing configuration, but certainly for the main crossing, having all the um, power up the at the nose should hopefully make the steering a little bit lighter and not as heavy um, and pull us along a little bit better on the downwind.
0: So this is going to be wind from the stern pretty much all the way across?
1: Yes. Um, so we plan to do the run line from Grand Canaria, which is about 2,650 nautical miles. Should take about 18 days or 19 days at six knots. Um, that would be ideal. And obviously, if you can do the straight line. But of course, as soon as you start to change that, uh, because of wind direction, we just increase distance and, of course, increase time. So, you know, we're planning on doing it anything from 18 to 28 days Mm -hmm. you know sort of like I don't think we're going to do it in 18 and I don't think we're going to do it in 28 but somewhere in between should be right and we will uh, make sure that you know we track with the wind so if um, uh, we have an Iridium go we'll have predict we have predict wind um, routing available on that So we can download that twice a day for updates. Um, They use their own variant of um, ECMWF and they post process the models a little bit further Uh, and GFS, those are the two options. And you can download both or one. Um, So we've got the ability to read the weather on a 12 hour basis. And decide which direction to pick to stay downwind or to stay with the wind Well if we get good wind and we can just um you know reach across that'd be fantastic but it's going to be unlikely that we'll be able to do that although one of our friends who left um two weeks ago now uh is doing very well and he's done a rum line and he looks as though he's going to make it in 18 days but he's had fairly strong winds as well in actual fact strong winds and swells of up to four meters on the side. So rather uncomfortable conditions. Um, but he left in November, so November's a bit it, it's not as settled, right? It can it can be one or the other.
0: Yeah. I I've always found on my boat I don't like going direct downwind because the boat seems to waddle so much from back and forth. Do you have that experience
1: in your boat? Um okay so if if the swell is following you, uh, and you've got the power up front, then I find it less so. Okay. If if I have a swell from the side, you know, even if it's quartering from the stern, then yeah, the boat will slide. You know, one it will push down in the stern and slide down. You know, it's not a full keel boat, so it has a greater tendency of doing that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yours should have less of a tendency of doing that.
0: Well, it uh, I I just notice that you know if I can I always almost point off the wind just so the the sails are on one side slightly going downwind as much as I can to but still have it uh, not directly downwind because yeah I, I, I just uh, is uncomfortable I, you know.
1: Look, downwind sailing is not what we're geared up for. I mean, we generally don't do it. Yeah. Uh, so, but when you're going to cross the Atlantic um you know east to west downwind is what you're going to be doing <laughs> so you know you have to prepare for it and i think that's another point of failure um and, and is that people buy sails for this passage that they've not used before and they fly them for this crossing only and they have a lot of issues i mean you know there's a boat coming down um just to the canaries not far from us within radio uh contact and we were share sharing weather information with them and then you know they, they dropped their parasailer in the water and there's just the two of them on board. Um not young and sprightly but obviously fit enough but they were pulling in this parasailer out of the water in uh in three meter swells simply because of chafe issues on on the halyard and it had only been flying for two days you know it was brand new hmm. everything was new on it <laughs> um another boat that's just landed um in saint lucia we we're talking to them via facebook messenger and they pretty much uh lost two halyards um and they were running a parasailer and It it just—I think they had very light wind conditions, and they had constant rolling, and um, you know the boat was constantly going side to side. The parasailer opposing, and it just wore through two halyards. So,
0: yeah. So, so does—are you seeing anybody there use wire rope halyards anymore?
1: I'm seeing lots of people replace them
0: with you're replacing wire rope halyards.
1: Yeah, uh, so Dyneema core, or Dyneema lines uh, with Dyneema sheathing on the outside um, for extra wear protection. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've seen that. Um, No, I haven't seen much in the way of wire. I mean, we had wire. Mm -hmm. We ended up replacing that. So we've got a Dyneema um, halyard for the Genoa. And on the outside of that, we have um, protection on the outside with a dynamite sheath that goes over. Okay. And the and the splice that uh, was put in, in actual fact, Julia put the splice in. She's the on board rigger. Um, the splice that was put in is really long, so it's very thick through any area that goes through. Um, on the top of the mast, or any anywhere where it touches anything. Okay,
0: I uh, you know I was wondering because I've had my original halyards, wire to rope halyards. Uh, I think it's one. It's not. Uh, it's seven by nine. I forget what it was. It was seven by nineteen, or not, yeah, it was seven by nineteen. Uh, wire three hundred three sixteen stainless. And they've been on the boat for years, and I haven't seen any indication of, well, I've had a couple fish hooks that I've had to take out over the years. But they seem to hold up forever. And when you say people are yeah, losing Yeah, I have the help, no doubt. Yeah, they seem to. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, yeah.
1: I, I would agree with you. I mean, that's a much better way to go. I mean, it's definitely. But I think, um, you know, there's less um, in the way of skill to put wire into rope and splicing that in and I think it's just disappearing because it's easier and cheaper to get stuff now and I don't know maybe people got more money they're going to dyneema and getting other people to do it or I just don't see much of the wire going in anymore hmm. yeah I remember but learning yes, to do the stronger.
0: I had a friend Marsh Party uh Larry's brother teach me to do the wire to rope splice and once you've done yeah. one and I yeah I've forgotten it because it's been 30 years but if i replace it i'm probably i've got new halyards on my boat that are the uh spectra or whatever it is the new hot low low stretch halyards light and i haven't put on my boat because these are working still and i just don't see yeah. any reason to replace them so uh yeah anyway. yeah and
1: then and then some people do actually replace them and the wire has, has grooved um the sheave yeah and uh, mm-hmm. yeah then they put um, normal line in and uh, the Little. grooves end up wearing through the line a lot faster yeah
0: when i replace it i'm gonna have to take my mask down because i've got new sheaves to put in so i've got everything ready to go with it when i want to do it but i'm hesitant to do it for because number one it's working i don't know why i need to fix something that's yeah. not broke but yeah you know it's uh, it's one of those things these are th- you know Thirty-year-old halyards that are still just doing fine on the boat. So yeah,
1: and you know what? It, it's probably a damn good idea. And if, you know, if if I had a choice right now, I think I'd switch that way.
0: You'd go back to wire to <laughs> rope, then, huh?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because it's definitely stronger at the wear points.
0: Yeah, I mean that's it. It's not. It's not the strength of the line. It's the the shafing that that breaks the halyards. It's not the strength of the 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 line. It's the yeah. chafing. So. Yeah, and it's a lot harder to shave stainless steel wire to rope, and mines are I think mines three sixteenths halyards. I mean, I can yeah, it's it's way overkill for what I need. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. oh, the other thing that failed on this other boat uh, this last week was the um, the swivel clips, the quick release swivel clips mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Um, that are on the end of the um, you know, when you when you're attaching it. From this top swivel to the halyard, uh-huh. that that was there is a you know quick release clip with a swivel, and I know that you can get some that uh, you know are super expensive for one clip, you know like over a hundred euro or something, and then you get some that are a lot cheaper than that, and uh, you know he had he he had fairly inexpensive ones, well not top of the range ones, and um, they broke so. You have to replace them with normal shackles.
0: So now that now that all these boats are sitting there in the Canary Islands and getting having to do repairs, is there much in the way of supplies, yacht supplies in the area?
1: Absolutely. Okay. An absolute ton. Okay. Yeah, there's um there's abs- there's multiple of everything. Uh it's a route, and certainly in um Grand Canaria, so so in Las Palmas. Um, and I'm not sure about the other islands, but I've heard pretty good reports from uh, Tenerife or Santa Cruz is the location there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and south of Tener- Tenerife, south of that island, there's also uh, opportunities. I know that Lanzarote was the same. Plenty of chandleries, although there's more here. There's actually, there's a, a rigging centric chandri there's a boatyard co-located chandri then there's two others on top of that so you've got four within a three minute walk of the marina Um, dive stores and then you've got so much in the way of um, food stores and the close ones which some of them are really big will deliver to the marina without a problem and I used to doing so Um, but the island's got you know everything on it (laughs) Ikea's whatever Hmm. grocery supermarket you want um, large sort of home depot type supply hardware stores the whole lot it's easy Um, car rental's really inexpensive you know we, we hire a car for two weeks I think it's um about 150 euro is the cost so you know easy to get around um parking the car at the marina is pretty in, inexpensive 10, 10 euro a month is the parking charge <laughs> um so so yeah it's a great place to depart and reprovision and, and repair from definitely um so Yeah, and, you know, people here... I mean, we talk to cruisers walking up and down the place and what they're working on, the sorts of things that they're working on are power. Mm -hmm. So ensuring they have the battery capacity so that it lasts them through the night, uh, and then they have a means of recharging the lost power in the daytime. Um, And... I think in the guys that have been crossing the last two weeks, it's been a little bit hard because they have had almost um, what well, it looks like 50% cloud cover throughout the mm. entire passage. Okay. So if you're relying on solar, well, first and foremost, you know, you're effectively looking at 11 and a half hours of daylight at the moment. And the peak sun hours, Julia and I were working through are about five hours a day so your peak sun's maybe five hours don't forget you're sailing west sun setting in the west that's right <laughs> so if you if you're flying a spinnaker or a, a parasail yeah, or two head sails?
0: yeah you're putting shade on your solar panels then yeah
1: exactly so so you know you, your peak sun hours might be fairly small between cloud and and uh, your own sails getting in the way so there's a lot of that consideration, you know, people that have got generators on board, fine. Um, <clears throat> but uh, we've seen a lot of people use the Watt & um hydro generators. Uh, one of our friends has actually got had one mounted, knowing that they were going to cross this year on the bottom of the boat. So it's actually directly behind the keel. It's one of the Watt & see new hydro pods, rather than the one that flips into the water at the stern. Mm -hmm. Um, so you know obviously they're great for when you're sailing because if you're doing I think if you're doing 10 knots you can potentially expect 5 to 600 watts out of those Yeah, yeah. Um, but the beauty about it is that they're producing that 24 hours a day so whilst it's not a great amount um, at the time but multiply it by a constant 24 hours it adds up uh, and much better than I think a wind turbine, which obviously you know, a downwind sail is not producing as much because your apparent slowed. the thing I don't like about the wind turbines
0: is it's damn noisy all the time
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean some are quieter than others or some are noisier than others, whichever way you want to look at it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: when I crossed the uh, atlantic and and i yeah. I was one of these original ones that was trying this uh uh water turbine. Uh, I had basically a a generator uh, attached to the to my boomkin, and off of that I had a a long line with a propeller on the end on a stainless steel rod and I ran yep. that and it turned and If you ever had to bring that in, that was just this big massive twisted spaghetti that you could never untangle and uh it really did not work it was a it was an expensive experiment. Because I was trying to deal with this problem, you know, back then. And eventually yeah. uh, it needed to have U-joints on both sides because it didn't. And it eventually just chafed the line through and I lost my propeller. And I said, well, that was, that was a worth, worthless experiment then. So I'm glad they've come up with different ways of doing it than, than back then. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, the what & C is pretty slick. But I think it's about three thousand euro to get one installed. Yeah, so, that's expensive
0: kilowatt hours. Yeah,
1: that's well, a lot of diesel. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, know, from our perspective, we upgraded the alternator um, a while ago because mm-hmm. the, the standard alternator that came on with our engine was was only sixty amps, and you, you know, you'd never <laughs> out of something that's rated at sixty amps. I think you'd get that for maybe one second but you know as soon as you start using it 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 drops down and i think the average production out of a 60 amp alternator is probably 30 amps um so we bolstered it to the largest one that we could fit into the space without all making any changes and it brought it up to 110 which i think we can comfortably rely on about 50 amps out of it and what brand
0: what brand is that is that a balmar
1: And no, it's not. And I can't remember off the top of my head, but I mean it was a relatively reasonable quality. It came from a UK place that provides power systems to ambulances Mm. and they do the control, they pulse the alternator and get you know, make sure that they monitor its temperature and all that sort of stuff. So there is a control box that comes with it to maximize Mm. the output, not just because I mean they as soon as they overheat the power drops out of them drastically. Um so anyway, so so I can't remember at the moment but, you know, the one that you mentioned is a well known, good quality one. Yeah, Bellman, And I think yeah. if you you know, if you get a high capacity alternator on the engine, that's a pretty good way to generate power because I think at low RPM, you know, in our case we'd only be burning a couple of liters of diesel per hour, yet you could be putting you know, 50 to 100 amps. in um, so you don't really need to run it for long. In actual fact, if we were to run the engine for three hours a day at 1200 rpm, we could comfortably put in at least 150 amps out of that, and that's about 150 liters of fuel for the passage. So, <clears throat> so you you know, you've got it, and and once you cross. I mean, unless you're crossing oceans regularly, once you cross, you know, you're back to normal sailing conditions. So you don't find yourself in this situation where you're doing 20 days or 20 nights um, looking for power because if you're doing a one- or two-night night passage, you've got plenty of fuel that if you need to run the engine to generate some power, you can do that. I mean, I know it's not the best way to produce power, but, you know, if you need to, it's there. The problem with doing it on a longer passage is you have to take the fuel into consideration. And if we didn't take extra fuel, you know, 150 liters is three quarters of our normal tank fuel capacity. So yeah, we'll actually be crossing with 400 liters of diesel, which would give us five days of motoring at 1600 RPM, which for us would be six knots. How are you storing your diesel then? Um, So we have, two hundred and twenty liters in the tank mm-hmm. and then we have eighty liters in four twenty liter jerry cans in one of the Lazarettes and then another another five twenty liter cans on the side. Okay. Tied down to um to a passerelle which we will probably not be using much in the future.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're coming in the countries that don't use passerelles, that's right. Yeah. Huh.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that'll be a, a change, and probably not much in the way of marina usage as well, as opposed to, as opposed to the mid.
0: Yeah. So, did you install your alternator, your new alternator, yourself?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty in, pretty easy install. Um, the control mechanism wiring was probably the hardest. It's yeah. Fairly finicky and slightly different wiring to the other alternator, but it wasn't that hard. Okay, so right.
0: you took the old alternator off and just put this one on, so it was just basically a direct yeah. replacement. Yeah. Okay. That's, yeah, one, I, thing, that's yeah. one thing. That's one thing I notice on my boat is I have to run my engine a lot, and I've got my original alternator on my boat, which puts out 30 amps maximum. And, uh, and I'm having, you know, if I'm motoring in the Mediterranean, it's not usually a problem because you end up motoring a lot more in the Mediterranean than you like, so it hasn't really been a problem. But I can see it being a problem. In the future, so I've I've thought often of replacing my alternator with a higher capacity alternator, and uh, I just haven't done it yet. So,
1: yeah, well, it depends on how much time you're going to spend on the boat. I mean, if you if you if you do it like you have been, you know, it's not a great hassle. You know, you you can make do with what you've got without having to go through the the time to change the system on the expense to do so. Yeah, yeah. So,
0: okay, so now, let me ask yeah. you about your engine. What what have you found that you've had to uh, – my, my engine's been a learning experience the last couple of years because I've had to learn how to change the uh, – or clean out the heat exchanger, and I've had to learn a few other things, change a fuel lift pump, which uh, was an experience last summer. And now I'm having problems getting air into the lines, and I've got to track that down next year. So I'm having. I've learned how to bleed my engine quickly and often, <laughs> which I never had to do in the past. So, what have you learned with your engine?
1: Um, I learned to do preventative maintenance. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so I want to say that. I mean, in the the first year, the first thing I did was uh, drain the cooling system, replace the cooling system, clean out, clean out the head. Um, heat exchanger Um, we we then made a list of things to do that we wanted to do next so on that list we replaced the engine mounts um, replaced the fuel lines and if you're getting air into um, how old are the fuel lines that you've got on yours because you know you don't need much of a hole in a fuel line to put air into it
0: Actually, it's fairly new. I had my uh, my tank replaced back in Turkey about four years ago, so the tank. is yeah, when okay. I was starting. I was getting leaks out of the tank into the bilge, so I said, "Okay, we have got to take out the whole tank." And I, I knew it was going to be an absolute mess to do it, so I actually hired the boatyard to do that. So they built a brand new uh, plastic tank to put down there, and uh, right. Okay. Yeah. So it could be, but it could be the lines. So the
1: fuel lines are new.
0: Yeah, well, the did fuel lines it? are relatively new, but I did, I, I did talk to uh, the place I buy my spare parts from in Costa Mesa, California. I talked to the mechanic, and I told him what, what problem I was having. He said, here's what we do when we're having uh, wh- getting li- air into the lines. We take and disconnect the line to the uh, fuel tank, and we'll put mm-hmm. a, a separate fuel tank in the engine compartment wherever we can put it and draw from that, and see if it still has the same problems and that way we eliminate it the lines to yeah. the uh to the tank like you're you're alluding to. So I thought okay, that's a good step to test it out yeah. and see what we can do on
1: that. So yeah. So so yes, yeah, so we went down that path of replacing things, things that we felt were a little bit old. I mean like the the exhaust hose uh-huh. was uh crunchy in places, so obviously that needed to to go. So we replaced the exhaust hose. Um Whilst we were replacing the exhaust hose, we we checked the muffler and the muffler had a wear spot on it. Um, so we stripped the muffler and we repaired uh, the muffler instead of buying a brand new one uh, because it just needed a bit bit of extra metal at one point that was rubbing against the um, the inside of the boat. Mm-hmm. So the the muffler has been reconditioned, the exhaust hose has been changed. We, we then also changed every soft hose on the motor. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an issue where on the high-pressure diesel pump, uh, one of the O-rings was leaking. Um, so it was just dripping diesel. So on the flyer, sort of under the guidance of a mechanic uh, over the over Facebook Messenger... From MDR, um, I put in a new O-ring onto that and then because that happened I then asked um, the guys uh, the diesel mechanics at a place called Ricco which is uh, I think a chain of m- mechanical places in Italy um, they took the high pressure pump off and changed all the O-rings on it and just refurbished it we also then um, replace the mixing elbow, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. every every so often will go on you. You can buy stainless steel ones, and another friend of mine just bought himself a stainless steel one, but the stainless steel ones are about €400. Euro. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then once you've got that on, you won't have any corrosion issues with it. Uh, so pretty much the, the core of the engine, the most reliable part, you know, that's all good. As long as you maintaining fuel levels and changing filters and so forth. But it's all the peripheral items that have a chance of wearing out or going that we've replaced. Haven't changed the starter motor out. Not that I feel we need to. It seems to be pretty good. Do you have a spare Um, on board? I wish I did. I've meant to potentially order one, but haven't got around to it. So I could still potentially pick one up from the Chandler here. Mm Mm-hmm. They actually have a whole brand new engine sitting there, if you want one. 8,000 euro for one that fits our boat. <laughs> Since I was saying, the supplies here are pretty good.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I've got a spare alternator on my boat and a spare starter on my boat because I figured they'd both go out at some point in time, but they're just sitting there waiting. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, our neighbor here um, bought himself uh, a spare of each as well, particularly for this crossing. Because he said, well, you know, without a starter motor, the engine won't start. But, um, but at the same time, we're not planning to be starting and stopping the engine too much unless it's for power generation. And then we've also got the solar. So, you know, we've got, we can produce power for, for the batteries without having to run the engine.
0: So what, uh, what's your biggest draw on your boat? In my boat, it's refrigeration. Is that the same on your boat?
1: Well, on the crossing, normally it would be, yeah, because it's constant and Mm -hmm. fairly inefficient. So, you know, when it's running, it's running at 5 amps constantly. Mm -hmm. And during the summer, I think it runs a lot. So we've installed a little – we replaced the control mechanism in there and replaced it with like a $12 Chinese digital controller, so you can set the exact temperature you want on it so Hmm. it's become more efficient with that being in there and replacing the old uh, thermostat Thermostat. with a dial okay Yeah. well
0: tell me about that because that's maybe something I want to do what exactly did you do did you just go on eBay and find something
1: yeah eBay or Amazon about $12 digital thermostat Uh, you can get ones for different voltages You you can get ones for 12 volt and you effectively just Uh, it's very easy to install like it's got a digital readout which Mm -hmm. if you want to install that you might have to run some cable somewhere but if you install it somewhere in the fridge area where maybe if you open a cupboard you can still read it if you want Mm -hmm. um, then that's good enough and it was excuse me maybe a two-hour installation and that's because it's the first one i've done i'm sure the next one will only be you know <laughs> potentially as little as half an hour yeah uh, to put it in you've got your learning yeah. curve
0: down but it only does you good the next time not the first time yeah so.
1: yeah that's that's right so yeah so that's a good way to do it and get something because you actually will be able to read the temperature because you can't do it on the dial the dial sort of you know you go by feel so you'll be able to put the sensor in the fridge where you want it. Mm -hmm. You'll be able to read the temperature and you'll be able to set what temperature you want it to come in and off at. And you'll be also able to set a delay on it. So, you know, if somebody opens it up and temperature drops, but it hasn't dropped enough, it won't necessarily kick back in straight away because there'll be a delay of, you know, a minute or two minutes or whatever for it to stabilize after the door's closed. And if there's enough if the temperatures still are correct after that, then it won't start the compressor.
0: Well, that sounds like a good idea because mine runs all the time, it seems like. and uh... Yeah,
1: well, in the summer. And so we've actually been, you know, in the nighttime, in the med, we were turning it. Turn, if I was going to bed quite late, then I'd turn it off. Yeah. And maybe, you know, in early in the morning um, when you have to go and use the gents or something turn it back on, and it's actually been not running for six hours or seven hours and make sure that it's got some something on the top that helps insulate it and seals around where the lid fits in because that'll stop airflow coming through there as well um that will help insulate it so maybe a towel or a rubber mat or something um so that we were doing that to save batteries but yeah
0: well, here you it know. is. It's I just piped, t- t- typed it into Amazon and fourteen ninety nine for an Inkbird dual-stage 12-volt digital control Fahrenheit thermostat heating and cooling. Uh, and it's for homebrew uh, fermentation fridge incubator. <laughs> so there you go. that should do yeah, it. Perfect. Yeah,
1: perfect. Yeah. Get one of those and it's not definitely not hard to install. And that'll save you. Well, at least you'll know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I think on the trip for us, the, the greatest, um, consumer of power, unlike you who has a wind vane is going to be our autopilot. Ah, yeah. 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 So that's going to be running probably about 240 amps a day. Um, you know, at about 10 amps an hour. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a big advantage. I had that wind vane of mine because I, you know, if it's. Uh, you know, you know how I do it. If it's blowing, I just use the wind vane. If it's not, I I'll use the auto helm. So,
1: yeah. 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 So you yeah, know, for us, the auto helm will consume the most power on the passage. So we'll probably, um, you know, if we do have cloudy days, we'll probably make a big bit more of an effort to hand steer. Um, it'll be good practice for the kids.
0: Yeah. So, what is the crew going to be? Just the family then?
1: Yeah, it's just the family. Um, we know the boat fairly well. Um, you know, the boys have become more and more helpful over time. Um, Ivy's pretty good at doing a watch. Um, Declan's pretty good at doing most things, and Declan will do night watches by himself now. So, so it's good, um, and it means that we've, you know, we've got four crew got four crew partially well, two adults and you know two largest, larger teenage boys that can certainly help a lot mm-hmm. so it means we don't have to take on extra food and we don't have to um, squeeze more people into bunks and that's another thing that we learned you know coming across um, doing the six nights from El Marimar you know when it became a bit rolly and uncomfortable to sleep um, not being squished in to a bunk with anybody else um, gave you a far more comfortable sleep. Yeah. Now, pretty much. You know, Julian and I were on opposite watches, and you know we had, so we effectively had the cabin to ourselves. And the boys have each got a cabin, and um, it just it's easy to find a place to sleep and spread out or. Move into the downward part of the cabin and wedge yourself in, without having somebody else roll on top of you and wake you up. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Well, this has been—I mean, this has got to be one of the best experiences your family has ever experienced over the last four years, right? You've been doing this for four years. Yeah. Yeah.
1: They're getting, well, four seasons. So we're four sort seasons, of finishing yeah. the fourth year. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's going to be pretty massive, and you know everyone's looking forward to the to the Caribbean um, in in the sense that it's a continuation of, of the summer uh, for us. And, um, you know, the, there's a rich history that is associated with the Mediterranean that some people would not ever give up for beaches and um, tiki bars. Uh, but for us, you know, we, we've got the younger kids, um, hot water, Beaches, sand, diving, and you know, tiki bar sounds pretty good to me as well. So <laughs> we we certainly enjoyed enjoyed the Mediterranean, and we'd happily go back and do more uh, in the Med, particularly you know places that we haven't spent as much time as we'd like to in there. But it's a great place to go. Definitely can spend more time there. But um, I I think we'll find, hopefully, find that the Caribbean's a pretty uh, pretty cool place for us. So what are your plans for the hurricane
0: season? What are you thinking of dealing with? The, how are you going to deal with the hurricane season?
1: Um, I think we're going to keep sailing through the season. Okay. Is the plan. But be fairly close to the ABCs.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So, you know, we'll, we can... By ABCs started, you
0: mean Abaco and Caraco area?
1: Is that what you mean yeah, by but, ABCs? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bonaire, Curaco, yep. Okay. Uh, so Granada, Bonaire, Curaco. Okay. Definitely um, easy to get to if, if we feel we need to run from something. And it's also the the lesser um, path uh, that, that they take anyway. So, you you know, you've got less chance of one coming down there. And you've got, uh, you know, fairly close to being out of the, the zone entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the plan. So try and do as much as we can, but be weary of of hurricanes and be in a place where we can be out of their way.
0: So are you going to cross with a group of people then?
1: So the, uh, yes, we are, um, the short answer to that. And... It's through others wanting to come with us. Uh, It's not something that we looked for, um, but, you know, we certainly don't mind. So there is one other buddy boat that's definitely leaving at the same time uh, as us. You know, we'll go together. Um, And they're also Bavaria. They're Bavaria 46, so roughly the same sailing characteristics. They've got a taller mast. They... They, they're they not a shoal keel, so they, they do sail a little bit faster, um, but in a downwind configuration, I don't think it's going to make much difference. Yeah. So so they're, they're, they want to stay together all the way across or within VHF range if possible, and I think there's a third boat that will be doing the same, and then there's two to three other boats that will be roughly potentially going at the same time but their sailing characteristics are totally different so it'd be unlikely that we'd stay together so is your
0: plan to just to check in on vhf once in a while because it's going to be awfully hard to keep everybody in sight during that passage
1: um glad you asked um it's actually very easy in actual fact we we intercepted this other boat as they left portugal and we went through the jib Strait. and you know we were Hundreds of miles out, and we planned to intersect, and we met up within visual sight of each other um, in the Atlantic, without any problem at all. And it was through the um, 300 euro, or you know, three or four hundred dollar US device called an InReach. Okay. So, <clears throat> you know, the little InReaches that you can take, and ours is actually the InReach Mini, which you can put in your pocket. And it's got a two-day battery life on it, um, but if you plug it into your 5-volt charging system, it can hang on the wall, and it uh, Bluetooth links to your phone, and whenever you send a message, um, that message will have a lat-long with it as well. Oh, okay. Uh, it, it does... It also shoots a lat-long position to the Garmin site, and Garmin provide tracking. Um as well so we've actually we'll have 10 minute tracking across the Atlantic both through the Garmin site and the no foreign land site um and that will be coming from the InReach. and as a backup we've got the Iridium Go to do that with as well so the other boats also has an in reach and we can see exactly where the other boat is at any time um and any place without reception
0: Okay, so the iridium in Reach that is that a monthly payment as well, a monthly service fee?
1: It is, um, okay. and you you can scale that up or turn it off or suspend it. Um, the plans that we've been using, I think, are about forty US a month. Okay, and Iridium Go is that about the same price per month? No, that's <clears throat> that's more expensive, um, and that depends on who's providing. The service, But I'd say um, double to triple that okay uh, the inReach. So the inReach is, is far more cost-effective than the Iridium Go. The Iridium Go is good if you want to make calls. Mm-hmm. It's also good if you want to do predict wind um, weather routing whilst in route. Um, you can't do that on the inReach. <clears throat> but you could always have somebody on land sending you text messages giving you weather updates Yeah, on yeah. the inReach. Yeah. Um but if you want to look at it yourself you need something like the Iridium Go.
0: And that's what Finding Avalon did as well. Same same system, but not the I'm not sure if they had the inreach mini on their boat. But they did have Iridium and predict win on on
1: theirs. So Yeah. I think it's a pretty good it's a pretty good deal having having that. And the other good thing about the Iridium Go, uh which Julia has tested, is that you can have uh um, some NOAA interpreted charts that come in a, a image format, sort of like the you know, the fax weather equivalent. Yeah. Um, you can have those automatically sent to an email address, and the Iridium Go will pick up that email and the associated image that's in it.
0: Boy, it has changed a lot, Jack. When I came across in '97, uh, I had a weather fax that downloaded through my shortwave radio. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and it's totally changed. I mean, uh, sometimes I'd be able to do it, sometimes I wouldn't, but I'd have to interpret the uh, the weather facts myself, which was questionable at best. It's making it a well, lot I easier. Think you,
1: I think you can still have a shortwave radio receiver without even having going to the complex um, transmitter part of it. Just have a receiver, and you can have an application, uh, whether it's on your PC or on your tablet, that will listen to the sound and plot the chart for you and create a chart for you on the device and that will cost you almost nothing yeah that's
0: that's pretty much free it was free back then and so as long as you yep. have the uh, as long as you can tune into the right frequency and have decent reception you can you can do that so uh, yeah
1: yeah that's right and that's the tricky bit whilst on the iridium go it's it's almost a certainty unless the iridium network shuts down Because its satellite yeah it's, it's, yep. uh, you're just shooting up
0: a few a few, you know, a few miles. I'm not sure how high up they are, but uh, these I'm not sure if these are geosynchronous satellites or if they're a series of satellites always tracking around the world. But uh,
1: no. uh, They're in motion because, yeah, they're not geostationary because they do pass by. Yeah, they're not geostationary. Okay. So they're closer in, okay. which obviously is better for um, reception.
0: Right. And you've got redundancy in the satellites as well. That's good. Yeah, Okay. Definitely. All right, so so, yeah. so that's uh, that's that's a great, a great a lot of great information, Jack. So I want to talk to you when you get to the Caribbean. When do you plan on pushing off?
1: Uh, the current plan is to depart after Christmas, about the twenty ninth. About the 29th, um, Okay. Yeah, so we'll probably leave, and also, you know, we'll hop out of the marine at some point and just give the bottom a scrub. Mm-hmm. It, it last got uh, anti fouled at in March mm-hmm. of this year. Okay. So it still should be in reasonable condition. Um, so we'll give that a bit of a scrub and um, come back into the marina, do a final reprovision and with the fresh fruits and vegetables and and then head off about the 29th.
0: Okay. So uh, If I talk to you before yeah. then, that'd be great. If not, have a great trip and make sure, well, I'll, I'll check in with you uh, around the middle of, january i guess and see you see where you're at
1: yeah okay and yeah i might try and do some um some verbal logs on the way if, oh, if that sort of works that'd out that'd
0: be great yeah just send them along and we'll just post them because i'm sure everybody just like me is interested you'll be one up on me you'll be at atlantic crossing going the other direction now so
1: well it's it's about but I think you did the harder one, right? Yeah, that 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 <laughs> one you get ticked in the teeth no matter when you do it. So that one was exactly. Yeah, I
0: need to do it again though, Jack, because I lost thirty pounds on that passage, and I need to lose about thirty pounds <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, well, thanks so much, Jack. I appreciate you coming on for another quick follow-up before you head off.
1: Uh, you're very welcome. All right, Franz. Have a good one. You too. Bye bye. See ya. Okay
0: life is short in the end all that really matters is the memories you make so make a few go sailing
1: Joel you want to know something? Every now and then, say what the f- what the f- gives you freedom. Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it.